Hello, and welcome to The Intellectual Bend. I am David Gonzalez of Weird Fish Media, and this is my show. All right, we have a special discussion in store for you today. The topic is on fear and reverence for the Lord. This was requested because in light of COVID-19, some of my Christian brethren thought it would be appropriate to deep dive what fear ought to look like. Now, a quick note, when I started this podcast, I had discussions like this in mind with brothers like Oscar as people I would be having conversations with. In fact, Oscar was the very first person I intended to do the podcast with, so I'm sure he's going to be a regular here on this show. All right, I'm not going to hold you up any longer. Enjoy this episode. Today we are talking about fear, the, the right and healthy, having a right, healthy, reverential fear of the Lord. We were just talking about the whole coronavirus and just the panic and the fear and this how fear has gripped us and how it's misplaced, how we've placed a lot of our fear in something um, other than, than where it should be placed. And that, that is which, which is God, you know, cause God, we confess that God is the Lord of the cosmos and the Lord of the smallest cell, like the virus and everything. He is Lord overall. And, and when we understand that, then we know that our fear should be placed in, in the proper context. And that's before our God. So, um, we're, we're talking about fear and me and Oscar are just going to kind of riff back and forth. Uh, you guys know me, I'm David Gonzalez. This is my good friend, Oscar Carmona. We have been friends for quite a while. We were running buddies in high school. I was, uh, I was always the strongest Avenger and he was the one trying to be <laughs> the strongest Avenger. Uh, I was, I was certainly the fastest one until he got faster than me. Um, uh-huh. but, uh, yeah. So Oscar, you want to just throw down on a little bit about what you've done in uh, your studying and, uh, you know, yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself real quick. Yeah, that's no problem. So, um, what I do is, uh, for what I do for a full-time job is I'm a, uh, a land negotiator. So I work for pipeline companies and I go out and I negotiate, um, pipeline easement. So basically I go to the landowner, I make an offer for, uh, easement rights and negotiate through those processes. Um, so I, not only do I negotiate myself, but I also manage other, uh, right-of-way agents and, um, and, and work different aspects of land negotiations. Um, not also, uh, surface site acquisitions and things like that. So, um, I have a sales background. Well, I was a Xerox salesman for a long time. I sold facility services for CentOS, uh, medical device sales. And a lot of that really kind of helped me with uh, getting into oil and gas and my, my land negotiations. So I use a lot of those skills when I do that. Um, I am a, uh, I, I do have a seminary degree. I don't know how much that matters to anybody. Um, I have a master's of arts in classical Christian studies um, from Knox Theological Seminary. Um, I wouldn't commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit by saying that that seminary experience was a, was a second uh, you know, moment of salvation. But definitely having that that education, uh, a classical education, really kind of uh, opened my eyes to scripture, opened my eyes to, to, to uh, a better understanding of the word of God. So to kind of give you a brief overview of what I studied in seminary is we looked at a synthesis of classical uh, political theory with uh, Christian um, understanding. And so, for example, we'd studied Plato and then we'd study Augustine. Then we'd study Aristotle and we'd study uh, Aquinas. 
and then we study Aristophanes, and then we would study Dante. And so, not to not to try to impress anybody or anything like that, but it it was a it was it was fascinating. It completely changed my worldview. Um, completely changed my understanding of the gospel. Changed my understanding of the Word of God. It continues to inform my understanding. And once a year, I go back and I pretty much read everything that I did in seminary because it just had such a profound impact on me. Um, for the longest time, I would not read Plato. Um, I would not read Aristotle. Um, I I didn't think it was advantageous for us to read any of the pagans at all. I only read Christian authors. Um, and this seminary degree kind of changed my understanding of that. We don't really realize how much of what we understand as Orthodox Christianity, historic Orthodox Christianity, was influenced by men like Plato, like okay. Aristotle and Aristophanes. So not to get too much into it, but um, those are the kind of things that I read. Those are things that I study. Those are things that kind of inform my understanding. And so, um, so yeah, that's, that's who I am. So I'm a land manager who has a master's degree in classical Christian studies and I'm on the phone with David Gonzalez. So <laughs> if, if you've never read Plato or Aristotle or any of those guys, Dante, Aquinas, uh, you're missing out. They are phenomenal reads. And yeah, I'm with you, Oscar. I, I read, I keep confessions. That's Augustine. I keep confessions on my, on my desk usually. And I'm always just going through it, always going through. It's one of my go-to books for sure. Yeah. If I only had three books to save for my library, it would obviously be the Bible. It would be C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And then I would grab Plato's Republic. Yeah. I mean, those, those are the three books that I would take with me if I, my house was on fire and I, I could only grab three books. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, leave, leave the kids, take the books. No, no. <laughs> well, yeah, no, not, not, no, I'm not that, not, not, not that, that much of a pagan. I'm not that, that much of yeah. a pagan. Well, the, so, the more kids you have, the more books you can take, I guess, more hands. Yeah. No, I just, uh, I, I'm, I'm smitten with Plato. I really am. And, uh, and so is the St. Augustine. Um, yeah. You cannot read the confessions without, I mean, first of all, he, he mentions him outright. He actually says at one point, not quoting it directly, but he says that he attributed his Christian conversion to studying Plato. So chew on that for a little while. You know, Mm -hmm. here's the greatest theologian that the church has ever produced, um, who was seeped in Platonic thought. And if you're Orthodox and you're historic Orthodox, you're an Augustinian. Yeah. So if you're an Augustinian, you're You're probably a a Plato. A Platoist. You're you're a Platoist. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, Plato, Anyways. in my eyes, Plato was like this far away from being becoming a Christian, you know, he was this I think far. If I, you know, so if you go, if you read Dante, who's probably one of the greatest uh, poets ever, um, there's a reason why he doesn't put Plato and Aristotle and Virgil, well, Virgil actually is the uh, the guy that is is his guy. Escort, but, escorting him, yeah. Yeah, there's a reason he doesn't put the the uh, Socratic philosophers in directly yeah. in hell. He kind of puts yeah. them in limbo, and it's the only light that's shining in hell in Dante's cosmos. And it's because precisely precisely what you said they they saw Christ, where they saw what they were looking for, but they they couldn't see him clearly. And I I'd venture to say that if they were if Christ was around when those men were philosophizing and trying to figure out what is man. I almost guarantee you they would have gone to Jerusalem and they would have bowed at the feet of Jesus. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure that could be debatable. I'm sure there's other people with philosophy degrees that would debate that with me, but 
the way that I read it and the way that I've been taught to read Plato, I just, yeah. if he knew of Christ, I think he would have became a Christian. I think he would have bowed down his, his, his laurel crown and given it to Christ. So, okay. That's Sorry. good. No, no, no. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I enjoyed that. I, that was probably more my fault. Okay. So fear, um, John, first John four eighteen says, you know, perfect love expels fear. And at the same time, you go to Proverbs 9.10, and it says, the fear of the Lord is the, is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah. And, and I'll say this kind of haphazardly, but how could, how could perfect love cast out fear? Would it not cast out the fear that drove people to the beginning of wisdom? And of course, for us Christians, the answer is no, because... Um, what we have here is an example of people equivocating and equivocating is basically saying something, a word or something has two or more meanings or, uh, so we wanted to kind of start off this call with, uh, before the Dante and Plato stuff to start off this call, with just kind of giving some definitions of what it is, uh, fear is fear is a very broad thing. And it has, I, w- I would say has different levels to it. And, uh, three things that I'm going to borrow from. Um, Thomas Aquinas. So he talks about servile and servile fear or is basically a fear of punishment and pain and, you know, any kind of any, anything that's consequential. So that's where you have a sense of servile fear. And the other one is philia and philia is more of a fear of offense or losing something that means a lot to you. Like, like I should be uh, afraid to offend my wife because if I continue to offend my wife for a duration of time, then it's possible that I'll lose her. She'll leave me. And the same, the, the same would apply with God in a different context. And then the last one is reverential fear and reverential fear is, is, and C.S. Lewis calls it a numinous and Oscar will give us a little bit of background why that is. But but reverential fear is is a sort of respect. It is a respect. It's kind of a, like an awe and a wonderment. And the, the best example that I could give you as a surfer is there's been many times where I've committed myself to a wave that has been way too big for me. And so in the same sense, I'm feeling a sense of servile, which is like, I'm going to die. Like I could potentially die if I catch this wave or if I bail or I don't make it. And then there's a reverential sense of fear where like, I, I'm like at awe of this wonderful wave, like God's glory on full display. And, and it's just such a beautiful, perfect thing. And at the same time, I could die. And so um, I thought I'd start with that. And Oscar, what do you, what do you think? What do you think in there, bud? Yeah, no, I, I want to go to the, uh, I want to go to the numinous aspects sure. um, because I think that's probably where when we talk about, God, and we talk about uh, fear, it's that fear of the unknown is kind of what that numinous aspect is is coming across as, right? And that's kind of the, the aspect that the, the virus is creating with a lot of people. We don't know much about this virus. We don't yeah. know about how it works. Every day, there's something different, the research. We can't wrap our heads around it. We know it exists. We can't wrap our heads around it. We can't get a beat on it. You know, there's all sorts of articles coming out that saying masks work, masks don't work. There's all sorts of articles coming out that it can be sexually transmitted. Um, I mean, there, we just don't know. Every day, there's just something that we just don't know about it. And it's not like it has a personality and it's telling us, right? Um, and so I think that 
what you're seeing to a certain extent is that numinous, what you've talked about, that numinous aspect of something that we, we can't really understand that exists, that's having a dramatic effect on our lives, both personally and publicly. And we're trying to figure out how to wrap our heads around it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, and, and that numinous aspect. So the reason David referenced uh, C.S. Lewis with that was that C.S. Lewis referenced a guy named Rudolf Otto. So if you study like the fear of the Lord or the holiness of God, you're going to come across this name, Rudolf Otto. And Rudolf Otto was a German philosopher and a German theologian. He was actually a Lutheran, but we're not going to, we're, we're not going to hold that against him. Yeah. And, um, but he wrote this article called the, uh, the, the idea of the holy. And so if you have a chance, it's, it's highly philosophical, highly theological. Uh, you'll have to read it over and over again. I'm still reading it. So I'm trying really hopefully not to get something wrong about what he was talking about. But basically what he came down to, he says, this numinous feeling, this is a direct quote. He says, it's the emotion of a creature, a base and overwhelmed by its own nothingness in contrast to that which is supreme above all creatures. It's, it's this feeling of complete and total inadequacy. It's the feeling of a lack of total control. And it's this feeling, this ominous feeling of something that it just terrifies you. Right. And I think to your point, that's kind of something that the coronavirus is kind of bringing up out of people is this ominous sort of, oh, my God, I could I could really die from this. Like I could just be sitting here. I can get in. I could die. And so and what does that do? It, 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 it kind of shocks the system. And it's like it's like, wow, do I really matter? And like, can I is this something that could really harm me? You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it's so, not even, and it's not even just harming you. It's all like, I could potentially carry it, not harm me and I can kill somebody else with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and so you add in that mysterious aspect of the coronavirus. Um, now Rudolf Otto, he was, he was looking more at like religious history and he was looking at the overall experience of human beings across the religious spectrum, not only in Christians, but everywhere people that have had these encounters with what they could only describe as just something other, you know what I mean? Whether they attributed that to God or ghosts or phantoms or whatever, but he saw this as a universal religious experience where people had this sense of the numinous, had this sense of this, they just had an experience of this awfulness where what they thought were these solid foundations of life and understanding just completely in a moment for just a moment were just completely wrecked by, Oh my God, I don't know everything. I can't control everything. Am I really in charge of my life? And I think that's where a lot of this coronavirus stuff, this fear is. I think a lot of people, including Christians honestly believe that they were in control of their life. And they're beginning to realize that their life can be impacted dramatically, dramatically by a tiny, tiny virus how much more so in other things, you know yeah. what I mean? So it, it's yeah. driven people to, um, once they, once they realize they don't have control and they don't have the knowledge to comprehend, to articulate what it is that they're experiencing with this, with this fear, it's caused them to give themselves to something other than God. They they're giving themselves yeah. to the state, to the government. And they're saying, <laughs> we don't know what to do. Tell us what to do. We'll do whatever you tell us. Even if those, even if those instructions are contradictory and the terms don't make any sense, 
uh, we will continue to submit ourselves unto you because uh, we thought we were our own gods and therefore we realize we don't, we, we aren't. And now you are our God, please help us. I have some very, very specific thoughts and feelings about that. And uh, I mean, I don't know if this is where you want to go. Probably but, not. Um, maybe, maybe, yeah. I, maybe I took it too far, but um, no, no, no. I, it's an, but it, it's an it, interesting it, observation. It, yeah. Well, the, the thing is, is that it will, we have proven to not only our government and, and to the people that are running our government, but those that have been running it and those that are coming up that we've proven to them that to a certain extent, we, uh, uh, we prefer safety over freedom and are willing to do almost anything to make sure that I have enough food in my belly enough money in my bank account, even to the point of giving the government almost complete and utter control over our financial system um, without even uh, uh, as so much as a, a whimper. And, yeah. um, and that's, I think that's, I think it is in line with what we're talking about. Where the because fear. that's the, that's yeah. the power of fear. Yeah. And um, we did this exercise in, in seminary where because one of the things that when you when you taught when you read Plato and Aristotle, and when you read the history of political science, even from a Christian perspective, one of the things that you're going to find is that uh, almost everybody is trying to avoid the tyrant. They're trying to avoid the emergence of one man, and you could say woman, but historically it's one man who controls every aspect of a person's life. And whether that's within a city, whether that's within an empire, whatever, um, they're trying to avoid the emergence of a tyrant. Our entire government system was designed right. specifically to avoid a tyrant. So in seminary, when we're going through this, we, um, our, our seminary professor had philosophic immunity, which means that he could say or do whatever, he, not do, but say whatever he wanted to say right. without, the, without us accusing him of heresy. And it's a Socratic method. You, you want to have dialogue. So in order to have real dialogue, a real dialectic, you have to be free to say what you can say and say your thoughts, kind of like what you and I are doing. But we had this uh, experiment where he asked us, if you were to become the tyrant, how would you do it? And what we all agreed that there's two things you needed to control. There was two things that you had to do. You had to control the media. In other words, you had to control propaganda. Right. All the and mediums. You, and, uh-huh. And yeah. through that, you had to control fear. Hmm. You had to control fear. And one of the ways that you did that, the one of the ways that you kept on. So fear is interesting because it comes and goes. It's like an appetite, right? right. I'm fearful. I'm not fearful. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that you'll see in tyrants is that there's always an enemy to be overcome. There's always somebody that you have to fight against. And what that creates is the military industrial complex. You always have to have a standing army. You always have to have a target. You always have to have somebody who's trying to steal your way of life. Who's going to come and take your kids. They're going to come and take your money. They're going to come and take your family. And so if you're going to be a tyrant, you've got to control the media. And you've got to control fear. And the way that you control fear is you have, a, you have an ongoing war with somebody, right? And there's somebody in the 20th century that did that very, very well. And we know his name as Hitler. Hitler. Yeah. 
<clears throat> Hitler did that very, very well. Very well. Um, I don't know that he was classically trained, but I do know that a lot of men around him were. And so it would make sense that the first thing that he did was go for not one of the first propaganda, things, yeah. But but let's go for propaganda. He did two things. He went for propaganda, he controlled the airwaves, mm-hmm. and he did what? He found an enemy. Who were those enemies? Jews. Jews, yeah. There you go. So um, so <laughs> what we've shown our government is that we care more about safety than we do freedom. And um, and the way that you the way that you take freedom is by inciting fear and yeah. offering safety. Of course, the safety net has a hole cut in it, and the more and more stuff you stuff down there, the wider and wider that gap's going to get before everything just falls through. So. Yeah, and it's because of the lack of a healthy fear in something outside of ourselves that we've 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 defaulted to this safety net, and we've and we've we're willing to sacrifice our freedoms because of it because the fear is misplaced, right? Would you say that? Yeah. that's a correct statement. Yeah, no, I mean it's. Um, I mean, so nobody nobody wants to die of this COVID-19. I don't know anybody that says, I want to go out and infect people. I mean, we've seen news stories of people coughing on fruit at grocery stores. So, I mean, there's yeah. somebody out there that is mentally ill. Right. Um, but my goodness, it didn't take long for us to just concede our freedoms yeah. because of a, a little virus. You know what I mean? It it didn't take long at all. <laughs> we, we all willingly just said, okay, whatever you want to do, you yeah, know, and, and without any thought or consequence to it. And, so, and I'll, cl- I'll um, clarify this just for people yeah. that are listening. I, I think, you know, Oscar said it's a little virus. And I, and I think what he means by this is that this isn't the Spanish flu where it does one thing to everybody. Like this virus doesn't do one thing to everybody. It's, it's for a lot of people that get the coronavirus it's less than a cold, if that, if even that. And for a certain demographic of people, it's worse than the flu. It's way worse than the flu. And so this is this is the this is what what he, what he was meaning by that. Like this this little thing is it's we don't understand it. And and so look, you know, uh, a New Testament scholar that I follow, he's here at Houston Baptist University. Um, his mother was in a nursing home, uh, eighty four years old, and she passed away. Yeah. But he's still, they quarantined everybody. They kept all of these elderly people, you know, inside their rooms where all that air is. They wouldn't let them outside. They wouldn't let them get any sun. You know, people coming in, you know, the nurses coming and going. And I mean, nursing homes are, are hotbeds right now for COVID-19. Sure. But part of that is, is the quarantine. They're, they're just stuck there. They can't go outside. They can't breathe fresh air. They can't do anything. And, um, so, um, so I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to minimize this and hopefully, you know, whoever's listening to this will understand that we take this very seriously. I've been quarantining. I go out when I need to. Um, but I go out when I need to, I don't go out when somebody tells me I can, I go out when I need to. Um, so I respect that, but there's a difference. Like I'm not willing the government said, you know, that Harris County just said that they're going to fine people a thousand dollars for wearing a yeah. mask. Well, find me all you want. Fort Bend County, thankfully, the judge is uh, a little bit more conservative, and he is not going to do that. So, um, the Fort Bend County is a county that I live in. He's like, look, wear a mask, don't wear a mask. We're not going to force you to do it. Just be smart. That's a good approach to me. That that allows me to make a decision on my own, which is one of the basis, not the only basis, but it's one of the basis of liberty and freedom. Right? right we're all sovereign um, individuals. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. So. Yeah. So 
we'll get into like what a healthy fear and reverence looks like for God. Let's, let's start with the reverse. I mean, so perfect love casts out all fear, right? But there are instances we see like in Matthew 10, 26, where Jesus is talking about like fear, fear the one who could harm your soul and your body and, and, and torment you in hell. Right. Like, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I don't think it's contradictory at all. Um, I, I haven't had a chance to study First John four nine, but it is in the context of judgment and punishment. So when he's talking about you know perfect love casts out fear, he is talking about judgment and punishment, which is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Um, I almost bet to venture that if we looked at the Greek uh, in Matthew ten and we looked at the Greek in John, John that we're probably not using this. Yeah, we're probably using different Greek words or a different understanding of those Greek words. But I can't, I can't verify that right now on a Zoom call. Yeah. Um, but there's no contradiction there. I mean, one of the things Jesus is saying, and one of the things that he is doing is he is harking back to the book of Deuteronomy and specifically in Deuteronomy 10, right? The book of Deuteronomy, in my opinion, seems to be Jesus's favorite book. When he is um, during the temptation with uh, Satan, when he's in the wilderness for 40 days, he's being tempted. And when Satan is throwing scripture at him, Jesus is quoting directly from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. It seems to be, it's an interesting um, uh, thing for me. It's because if you want to, fight against the devil. Look at how Jesus fought against the devil. And he didn't go, he didn't have it, but I'm being facetious here, but he didn't go to Ephesians. He didn't go to Romans. He went to the book of Deuteronomy to fight against Satan, especially word for word. But in Deuteronomy 10, right? So when Jesus is talking about that in in Matthew 10, he's going back to this uh, passage in Deuteronomy 10, 12, where it says, what does the Lord, he's talking to Israel, What does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord, your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Now, there's a lot in there, but part of that phrase, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, is part of the great uh, commandment that Jesus tells to the lawyer in Matthew 22, right? Two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what is interesting, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, my uh, Old Testament professor, Bruce Walkie, who a lot of my stuff on the fear of the Lord and fear came from, he notes that in the book of Deuteronomy, a fear of the Lord and to love the Lord are synonymous terms. Mm-hmm. And basically what he's talking about is that they're two, two, two of the same coin, the two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, there is the fear of the Lord in which I follow him in which I obey his moral commands, his statutes, his commandments, which is why when you go into 1 John, you see, if you love me, you will follow my commands. So here we, again, we go back to the book of Deuteronomy Deuteronomy. and John. Yeah. And so, but also what Bruce Walkie is talking about, Professor Walkie is talking about, is there's another aspect of the fear of the Lord. It's not just, okay, if I don't do the right thing, God's going to punish me. It's that I'm going to do the right thing because I fear the Lord. And oh, by the way, I want to do the right thing because I love the Lord. Yeah. And so it's it's more fear in the Bible when it comes to a fear of God is, is part of a covenant relationship with God in which I have devoted myself in covenant through trust and faith and hope with God. So that there is a fear and reverence and awe for his word, his law word, his commandment, 
But there's also this sense in me in which I want to please him like I want to please a good father. So fear and love go hand in hand. So it's interesting that John would make that connection of, you know, perfect love casts out fear within the context of judgment and punishment. Because I think, again, I'd have to study that a little bit more, but I think what John is trying to get at is that the ultimate road of fear, fearing the Lord will ultimately lead you in its final analysis to an unwashed, unabased love of God. And that love will cast out any potential fear that you would have of the mystery of the unknown Mm. at the final judgment. Does that make sense? So that when I come to the final, what what some um, ancient Christians referred to as the beatific vision, when I come to that final time, when I see, when I'm at that, that, that I'm at the throne of God and I see him face to face, there will be that fear, that awe, but mm-hmm. the love of Jesus will cover me and there will be this embrace, right? So it's right. not a fear of judgment and punishment. And it, it, so I think the final road, the final, uh, yeah, the, the, the highway of fear leads to this perfection of love. That I know that I am loved. I know that I am welcome. I know that I'm in relationship with God, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably something that John is getting at, but uh, I'd, I'd be interested in studying it a little bit more. So. Yeah, so my thoughts are, you know, going back to the three definitions I gave, you know, Sturville, uh, Philia, and reverential. It's it's a kind of a progression you see. Um, Sturville is more of a uh, kind of a primitive thing. It's something that, like you said, you you, you alluded to this earlier, where sometimes our fears wear away, right? Like, yeah. sometimes when we get caught, we're like, oh, I'll never do that again. And then before you know it, it wears away and then you're doing it again. Yeah. So the perf- the perfection of love there, I think, is also the perfection of a, of a healthy fear. You get back into that reverential. The only yeah. difference is, is when you do get to the throne, that fear is no, it's, it's a different kind of, uh, of reverence for something that's way magnificent, way more than you yeah. can comprehend. So it's, yeah. it's really not, it's the love expels fear doesn't void out, void and null fear. It perfects it. And it's yeah. this symbiotic relational thing between love and fear, right? Yeah, I think um, so. One of the things that you'll find when you study people who are trying to understand what it's going to be like to encounter God in His fullness, mm-hmm. there is that mystery about it. But there's this uh, there's this heightened awareness of of like the senses. Everybody assumes there's going to be this heightened awareness of the senses. It's going to be like a, a magnificent light show. Um, but it's that internal feeling that we're going to have. Uh, it's it's both awe-inspiring, like I can't believe what I'm looking at, can't believe what I'm experiencing, and yet it's also drawing me in. Yeah. And that's that's the thing about with 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 Christians. That's the thing about fear, is that um, the fear of God ought to draw you in closer to Him, not to pull you away. It's um, it, it ought not to drive you to something else It ought to. And, and the, the, the negative part of that is that this is where you get a lot of people that have emotionalism. Like they want to like experience God so much. Yeah. That char- they have, the, like, the charismatic. Yeah, charismatic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm not talking about something like that. I'm saying that I'm not saying that you want to have these experiences over and over again. I'm just saying that, that there's this drawing in to God and to the presence of God through the fear of the Lord and the perfection of love. And there's this anticipation that you have. I mean, 
I mean, you think about Paul in Philippians, he's in jail. Now we think, we think he is going to die. He actually probably lives a couple more years. It's transferred to Rome, but mm-hmm. we, he thinks he's going to die in Philippian in the Philippian in Rome. So he's writing this letter to the Philippians thinking he's going to die. And he has this magnificent statement where he says, you know, to live is, is, is uh, to live is gain, to die, to die for Christ's gain, or something like that, right? You, you know the verse. Yeah, um, to, to live is yeah. life, and to or to die is gain, and yeah. to die is gain. I, what? How can he say that? Yeah. How can he say that? Well, he can say that because he knows that on the other side, he's going to see Christ physically, see Christ, right? And there's he understands because he's already experienced Christ one once on Earth. The first time he experienced Christ, I think it's in Acts eight. Right. He um he goes blind, right? And so he's anticipating that day that he will see Christ, but he won't go blind. Everything that he want that he's wanted in his life, everything that he has striven for, well, he will come face to face with the glory of Christ, which is all that he wants to do. And you, you know, people always talk about I had a good friend who she said that, you know, she she wants to start a, a prison ministry. And I was like, okay, you want to start a prison? She goes, yeah, I want to be like Paul. I want to do these great things, these magnificent things. And I was like, I was like, you, I was like, okay, I mean, you want to be like Paul, but Paul was a regular guy. He, he just, he just, he, he wasn't so spectacular. He would even probably say, I mean, at one point he says that he's the chief of sinners. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I was like, do you see yourself as the chief of sinners? You know what I mean? I mean, and what, what that person was trying to get as they, they just want to do something great for the Lord. And I'm like, you know, if you, if you just do what you're supposed to do, if you, you know, show faith, if you exercise love and affection towards God and love and affection towards your fellow man, you're doing something spectacular. You're doing something magnificent because the reward isn't here in this life. The reward is in the next. Does that make sense? And so I get the sense that you want to do something great, but at the same time, just, just being faithful in the little things um, sometimes are are what God is requiring of us. Does that make sense? So not fearing. Yeah, so. I can't help but throw Jordan Peterson into this conversation, um, you know, where he talks about clean your room, right? And it's like, clean your room. Yeah. you know, manage the things that you have responsibility over, manage those yeah. well. And and out of that, there is a storehouse of blessings that will come. I mean, if if you can do those things that are right in front of you, you know, if you could just make your bed well, and if you could just raise your kids well, and if you could do those things, not to say perfectly, but if you can do those yeah. things well with 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 the lordship of God always at hand, then there's, there's something to that. Well, and see, so that's a humanist perspective, right? So for the Christian, what does that mean? It means when things happen that I can't control, uh, my response is always in faith to, to God. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, um, so we really, so like making our bed is one of those ways that we can kind of, um, uh, you know, show that we're moving towards something good. Um, when I can't control something, what is my response, right? When something comes up unexpectedly, what is my response? How do I respond? Like do the I virus. pray? Yeah, like, yeah the virus. like the virus. But even in my day-to-day life, I mean, I, I, I found that a long time ago, I used to try to plan out my day and then something would just get in the way and my day would be completely ruined. I don't do that anymore. I do have things that I have to do every day, but I don't get upset when something unexpected happens. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's been, it's, it's a virtue that I've been trying to cultivate over the last few years of, okay, there's, there are things that are going to happen today. That I have no clue about because I'm not all knowing. Okay. So what is my response going to be to that? I'm going to be calm. I'm going to do what I can. 
I'm going to do the next best thing. I'm going to pray. And I mean, I can't tell you how much of a help that has been just for me personally um, to just do small things well every day. Yeah. They add up over time. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah there's so like this, a couple. Yeah. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say there there's um, I've seen it so much with with our culture and, and especially in the sales world and business world, people are always they're overlooking the small things to look for those, those big, big things that they can achieve, like raise a million dollars to give away. Like they're always striving for the big things. Those things are good. And when they come your way, you should take advantage of it. But the little things are the things that will prepare you for those bigger things. If you can do those little things, well, they, they add up. Oh yeah. And just doing the right thing, right? What in every situation you should be asking yourself, what is the right way to do this at the right response in the right time and for the right reasons, you know what I mean? And so, um, but I think, I think there's just little things that you can do every day so that when, so one of the ways that my wife and I, I'll say this. So the way that we live our lives is we live, live it with second or third Uh, Egyptian captivity faith. Let me explain that. So between the first generation that went to Egypt and the last generation that went out, there's at least two generations within there that were in captivity, that they were not going to get out, that were birthing children who were going to be slaves, who would birth children who were going to be free. Mm -hmm. They knew they were going to be in captivity. Joseph even said, when you leave Egypt, you take my bones with you. And at the end of the book of Joshua, there's this vague mention of the bones of Joseph. So like you you go through Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, or Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you get to Joshua. And at the end of Joshua, oh, by the way, we took the bones of Joseph. But one of the things that I tell my wife all the time is like, we want second or third generation faith. And what, yeah. is that, what does I mean by that? I mean that we want that faith that says, even if we aren't rescued from this present circumstance, we will praise the Lord. Yeah. We will show faith. If, if I knew that this day today was the best day I was ever going to have, and this day was an average day. This day was, I mean, we had some good conversations with the kids at the dinner table. Angel and I had some decent theological, philosophical questions, political questions. This was an average day. But right. what if I knew that today was the best day I was going to have? And it's all downhill from here, right? I become Job after this. Right. If I knew that, would my, because that's how the second or third generation, they knew they were going to be enslaved for those right. two generations. If I knew that, would I still get up every morning, praise, read my Bible, pray, and praise the Lord? That's the kind of faith that I want to cultivate. If yeah. everything comes crashing down, will I still praise the Lord? And so, but you do that with the little things every day. It's the next thing, next little thing, the next right thing every day. And so that's the faith that my wife and I try to cultivate. Yeah, that's a, that's very insightful. I've never thought of that. Um, I think it it very much applies. It's basically the Christian should take the perspective of like, you know, God's not coming in my time and our culture is going to continue to decline. And possibly coronavirus is going to continue to wreak havoc on us for the next five years. Like, yeah. like that, that's a possibility. And if, if, if those people, the second and third century Egyptians or Jewish people or Israelites, rather, if, if, if they didn't lose their faith, if they had their fear properly oriented towards the Lord, yeah. then, then why shouldn't we? 
Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it was an interesting thought that came up in a study one time. Um, and I thought, oh my God. I mean, imagine knowing that you that you are giving birth to children who would be slaves their whole life, but that yeah. they would give birth to children who would be free. Um, and they didn't know that those children that would be free would also not enter the promised land, but that their children would right. enter the promised land. I mean, that, yeah. but still, I mean, it's, it was profound and it was interesting um, because I never thought of it like that. There were, there was people that would, it, their whole lives were nothing but slavery. And yet for all intents and purposes, they maintain their faith. They maintain their fidelity to God. And, and it proved to be, uh, generationally, it proved to be something spectacular for their, for basically their grandkids. Does that yeah. make sense? So, I know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we have, we've inherited that. I mean, we have yeah. a, a robust heritage of second and third generation folks, first generation, yeah. thirds. I mean, like look at our heritage and this is, this is, we're, we're from this elk, you know, this is our, yeah, this is our branding, you know? Well, I mean, yeah. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think I, you know, we might, we might be pretty close to losing what our founding fathers had intended. We, yeah. we, I mean, this, this is probably just a discussion for another day, but we are probably pretty close to losing that, but it wasn't something that we did necessarily. It, it happened over generations and generations after them. Right. But we're just trying to maintain any sense of freedom that we have right now, any sense of liberty. And, um, and well, and it was interesting because, um, Angel, my wife, my wife's name is Angelica. We call her Angel. She she asked me today, and I, we're not going to get into this. I'm just going to tell you something that I told her. She said, how should we respond when the government mandates something? Like when the government says we must do something, how should we respond? And it, it, it garnered a conversation. Right. But basically what I told her is, and if you read St. Augustine, he was going to get to this, is one of, one of the, the great analogies that you'll run across in history again i'm going back to plato and right. saint augustine is this idea of of two cities right and it's the city of and it's it um really it's saint augustine who kind of puts these things together but you'll actually see it like in aristophanes you'll see it in aristotle you'll see it in plato is this in idea plato's of a, republic plato's yeah. Talk, yeah he's talking about what is the perfect city how do you right. bring about the perfect the just city but Augustine expands that and says there's actually two cities. There's right. the city of God and there's the, the city, city on the hill. Yeah. yeah. And what he, what he says is that interesting on earth, they kind of merge. There's, there's this merging of the city of God and the city of man, even though in, in this, uh, this theoretical area, they're, they're actually two different, two different places. but the result of that merging is that we get some, some butting of heads. Right. And so what I told my wife today is I said, look, Cause she was like, well, how do, what about this passage? And what about this scripture verse? And I said, look, this, you and I are not going to figure this out. There have been much smarter men than you and I that have contemplated. How do we go about with civil disobedience? What laws do we determine we cannot follow? And so she said, well, obviously, you know, we can't follow abortion. I said, oh, really? I said, well, your tax dollars go to, you know, Planned Parenthood, part, $500 yeah. million. Dollars. Yeah. Should you continue to pay taxes? Well, I don't know. It's like, well, okay. I mean, this is what we're talking about. Am I responsible for all those deaths because a small fraction of my taxes go to this organization? She's like, well, I don't know. And I was like, okay. So I said, look, we're not going to solve it right now. But what you have to understand is that when you're a Christian, you are a citizen of two cities, city of God and the city of man. And what you'll get from political philosophy is you cannot be divided. A right. divided city, a fractured city is no city at all. So by nature, 
by by Christ imparting his nature to us through our own, the fact that we are Christians, we are a divided city. We will always rub against what is the city of God and what is the city of man. And that's what you're seeing here today. And that's why so many Christians are divided. A lot of Christians don't understand this, right? They think one very dimensional, we're city of God. Well, no, you're also part of the city of man. And so what's your yeah. responsibility in there, right? Yeah. So we live in this tension between the city of God and the city of man. And it's always going to have this tension. If it wasn't coronavirus, it'd be something else that creates this tension between Christians and secularists, right? Yeah. So you have to understand that if you're going to engage with the coronavirus issue. My issue is that a lot of the people I'm engaging with are other Christians who are so fearful of this that it has shocked their system that they're just like, they just they just can't get over it. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's been my big issue. So. No, it's interesting you bring that up because I had that same conversation, um, you know, when we should exercise, a, you know, civil disobedience, right? When should we, mm-hmm. when should that happen for a Christian? And we're, you know, going back and forth. It was interesting because you know, of his worldview versus mine. And that's the image of the two of the two cities, right? Like we have a yeah. worldview and there is, they have a, there's a, a there's a Gnostic worldview out there. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a, like a dualistic worldview out there that, um, which is really interesting. So. Yeah, no, I mean, um, we're not going to solve it, but we have to, but it doesn't change the reality that we live in that tension. Right. Yeah. And so I, so I told my wife, I said, if I believe if America goes to war and it's an unjust war, but my tax dollars go to fund that war and a sniper bullet hits an enemy combatant. Now, again, I believe this to be an unjust war, but my, that sniper sniper rifle hits an enemy combatant and kills him because a portion, a tiny fraction of my tax dollars went to buy that bullet. And am I morally responsible for that death? The answer is no, but it creates a conundrum for us. Does it make sense? Because we are part of that city of man system. That is a system that is part of it's greedy. It's death laden. It's power driven. Power hungry. Yeah. Um, and we are part of that system. And we're also citizens of that city of God. And so I, again, we're not going to solve this here and now. It may never be solved, but there's always going to be that tension. That tension. And, um, and we, have to, we have to understand that if we're going to, especially going back to our overall subject, I think if we're going to understand how to combat crippling fear um, or even fear in general that keeps us from uh, serving one another or keeps us from experiencing really God. Under, experiencing God, yeah. we have to understand, okay, is this coming from the city of man that tells me that my life should be happy, healthy, and wealthy? Or is it coming from, or we're going to come from the city of God that says you are going to experience suffering in this life? Yeah, It's not if, it's that you are, but take heart for I have overcome the world is what Jesus says. So we can't get out of the tension. We have to live in it. We have to figure it out. We have to swim in this swamp, but we have to understand that our primary allegiance is to the city of God. And that city of God calls us to what you pointed out, to cast out fear, to love the Lord, to seek out the good of my neighbor um, and to, um, you know, do the right thing. Right. right. We're, well, and, and we're also in the business of redeeming things, even creation. I mean, like yeah. God, I made this post earlier, uh, I think today or yesterday where God, you know, God didn't die on the cross to save us from creation. 
Yeah. He's, 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 he died on the cross to save us from our sins. And uh, yeah. so we're not, we're not anxiously waiting to get out of this world, which he's created, created perfectly and called good. Yeah. The only yeah. thing that's, that's broken this world isn't, isn't a faulty creation. It's, it's sin. Yeah. 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 And I mean, part, part of the city of man is, is, I mean, that ultimately what you'll find is that the city of man wins out because at the end of human history, we have what we have a city. So, whose gates aren't open, whose gates are always open, wide open, in whom there is nothing but righteousness and justice and equity. And so ultimately man's destiny is wrapped up in, in a heavenly city that it's not a city that we move up into heaven. It's actually a city that comes from heaven down onto earth, right? And so you're absolutely right. So there's that that great sense of that we are to be ever working towards bringing about. Mm-hmm. However you want to say it, yeah. the city of man, or the sorry, the city of God within the city, the city of, of man. Yeah. It's just that the city of man is is not just going to let us land there. It's going to continue to butt heads, right? right. So, um, yeah. yeah, 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 that's good. I, I, the last thing I think we should talk about before we close out is how do we cultivate a atmosphere, a an environment where we could have a proper sense of God's love or love and fear for for the Lord. Um, yeah. I, I automatically, I think, you know, reading the word, doing it amongst Christian brothers, community, prayer, um, you know, prayer by yourself and prayer in community, communion, you yeah. know, church, uh, seeing yourself as a, as a, a member or as a participant of the kingdom of God, things like that. Yeah. Want to expound on that? Well, if there's a city of man, there's things I'm supposed to do in that city. There's also a city of God. And there's things I'm supposed to do in that city. And I mean, I can't expound on it any more than you have. I mean, um, reading your word, um, consistent prayer life, um, community, right? Whether that's what you guys do with faith and influence, or that's a, a church group, which I would say that that a church is vitally important. If you're a Christian and you're not a member of a church, now, if you're going to a church every Sunday, okay. But I'm saying, are you plugged? Are you plugged in? Right, yeah. using a a common, you know, uh, cultural term we have, modern term, in. Yeah, like, yeah, modern but term. that's actually true. I mean, that, that's, mm-hmm. uh, I was, I was trying to, I was lamenting on something because I was, this is the first Easter that I can remember that I wasn't part of a gathering and somebody kind of pushed back and says, well, we're, you know, we're the sent ones, you know, we're supposed to be sent. We're not supposed to be lamenting that we don't have a building to meet at. And I'm like, dude, the word for church. Ecclesia. Is Ecclesia. Yeah. And it doesn't mean a building. It means the incarnational meeting, physical, of Christians gathered together to worship the Lord. I was like, whether that's in a building or that's in uh, outside, we are being prevented from gathering together incarnately, ecclesia, to worship the Lord. This is lamentable. Yeah. So it we cannot should, be stressed. Yeah. yeah, you should have Christian men who can. You should have at least five men that you can call at any time, for any reason, who will give you sound advice. Right, that takes community. That takes being a member or partner or whatever your church says, of a of a church. It's iron sharpening iron. You cannot be a you cannot be a sound healthy. That's the word. The word when sound in the Bible is healthy. You cannot be a healthy sound Christian without that community, because um, God has created us in order to have that for our own good and for the good of those around us. And here's something to think about. If you're at a church, then God in his sovereignty 
has placed you in that church because you have something that that church is lacking. But on the flip side, if God and his sovereignty have placed you in that church, that means that that church has something that you are lacking. And that's probably one of the greatest ways to see a Christian community. They have something that you need and you have something that they need. And that's the ecclesia. That's what forms that community. So I think that's something that is very important and vital for us in cultivating that, that healthy fear of the Lord is community. I want to drive that last point in a little bit more because I think the danger for men in particular, and especially business business people is to isolate, you know, especially if you're the kind of business person that works alone or, um, you know, just challenging the people that are listening to this call. Like, do you have those five people? Like, are you yeah. plugged in? Are you committed to a church? Are you, or, or are you just a consumer of a church? You just go consume the word, consume the worship, but you never give back. You never pour yeah. into. You're not developing, cultivating relationships. You're not discipling yeah. people, which is a very clear mandate. Um, so we, we business folks need to consider that, especially as men who like to, who easily isolate. We're, yeah. not, as, we're not as relational as women are, you know? Yeah, that's a, that would be an interesting topic to, to discuss another day is why why do men have this uh, this alpha male kind of, uh, you know, I can do these things on my own. I don't need other men. You know what I mean? Yeah. As I, as I look, yeah, as I look back on my life, I mean, almost every good thing that I have, whether it's a virtue, whether it's it's something mental, you know, it's, it's all come from other men that I've either observed or I've gone to for help. You know what I mean? And, um, so, I mean, I don't understand this, this desire that we have to pull up ourselves by our own bootstraps and try to make it on our own. We're just not yeah. designed to do that. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I, I, I think in, in the certain, in this claim, we can close on this, but I think if, if you don't have a, a church, a, a church home, if you don't have a community of men that you're plugged into and you're not afraid, you should be. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah, where I that's where so. you should have a healthy sense of fear. Mm-hmm. Like I'm missing something, something vital yeah. for my growth. Vital, and it's not just about me, the consumer, but it's about the opportunity to pour into other people, to be a part of of a community of people. Because in community, yeah. uh, a big percentage of how we experience God is through the body of Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I think we need to leave it on that because I've got 10% power on my phone. <laughs> Well, Oscar, I no, I appreciate you jumping on with me and uh, us riffing. We've been riffing for a lot longer than we've been recording, and I appreciate your time. And hopefully, everybody likes this. And uh, appreciate you. Yep, no problem, man. Love you. Be safe. All right, man. Later. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening in. I hope this episode was a blessing to you. I will give myself the hook and open myself up for questions if you guys have any questions or specific topics you think we should be covering here on The Intellectual Bend. I encourage you to DM me, direct message me on any of my social media platforms. That's Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Until the next time, have a good one. Good one.